welcome to another episode of In Moments Like These with David Graham. David is a speaker, author, businessman, former pastor, and founding director of Youth of a Mission, Montana. We believe that God is at work, constantly tugging at our hearts, working in and through relationship around us. Join us as we dive into a new devotional, as David shares a lifetime of personal moments and hopes to inspire you to see God the Father at work in your own moments. Thank you for joining us on today's episode of In Moments Like These. Most airplane landings, and I've had my fair share of them, most of them have given me a certain sense of relief. And on a February day in 1985, I believe, after two days of travel, including multiple connecting flights, I was glad to finally feel the wheels touch down on the runway at the Vero Vero International Airport in the city of Santa Cruz de la Sierra in the country of Bolivia in West Central South America. After deboarding, my dear friend Denny Gunderson and I, Denny was the North American Director of Youth with a Mission at that time, along with probably a dozen other YWAM-based leaders, headed for customs. And it was just outside of customs where we met up with YWAM founder and friend, Lauren Cunningham, who had just flown in from Hawaii and was waiting for us. The purpose for all of us being in Bolivia was to join in on a five-day conference with every YWAM-based leader from North and South America. I had come by invitation to seek permission and blessings from the U.S. YWAM council members to become the pioneering director for a brand new YWAM base in Montana. It would take a miracle for that to happen. A long story in itself, perhaps for another episode, but it would happen. After collecting our luggage, the bunch of us boarded a large airport van and were driven about a half hour to our hotel, where we arrived sometime well after dark. It was a small four-story hotel, quite unlike any hotel I'd ever stayed in before. Its old age and its poor condition weren't what surprised me. It was its location that seemed somewhat odd to me. It was some distance from the city center and any real amenities. And it was on a very narrow, very dark, very poorly lit street. Hmm. No matter, though, all of us were tired. And there were private rooms with some sort of beds upstairs. So, after finding food somehow, upstairs is where each of us headed to rest up for the next day's early meeting. My room was on the third floor, facing the street. A room with a view, I thought as I stepped through the doorway into my room, and then instantly fell into bed. I think I slept pretty soundly that night because the alarm seemed to go off in almost no time. I got up, I got ready, and just before leaving the room to go downstairs, I thought I'd step over to the window and pull aside the dark-colored curtain that was covering it. I was really taken aback with what I saw. Below me and directly across the narrow street in front of our hotel, bordering the sidewalk on that side of the street, and then stretching to the left and to the right as far as I could see, was a tall, maybe 16-foot-high chain-link fence topped with a mesh of concertina wire, razor wire. Behind the fence, in the distance, were some very stark and dilapidated buildings 
between the fence and those buildings was a huge dirt courtyard, a prison courtyard that featured a few small shabby looking open shelters here and there to allow prisoners to get out of the hot sun. And there were prisoners in the courtyard, not many, perhaps a dozen or so. Maybe only a few were let out at any one time. And the few that were let out weren't moving much. What stood out to me was their clothing, every one of them dressed in the same faded, maybe green-colored prison garb. Each wore a dark cap of some kind on their head. Some of them wore old sandals. Some of them were just barefooted. But it was such a sudden, sobering moment for me. First, because it wasn't the view I expected to see when I pulled aside the curtain in my third-story hotel room that morning. And over the course of the next three mornings, as I stared at the courtyard, I couldn't help but ponder, what was it that brought that prisoner, that one sitting there, that one sitting alone in the dirt next to the shelter? What repeated choices put him there? I would never know. I was given a book recently entitled Soul Keeping by John Ortberg. And in a particular section of the book, Mr. Ortberg talks about habits. And it got my attention. And today I felt that I was to read his exact words to you. Quote, The Bible will in some places address sins. In other places, it will address sin. Sin is a deeply entrenched pattern way below the surface. Insidious, like a disease that just leaks out of us without any effort. My sinful acts are premeditated. My sinfulness is more like a habit I can't control. I don't know how to turn it off. I don't know how to shut the bad habits down. Paul addresses this human dilemma in Romans chapter 7, starting at verse 15. Quote, I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. Then verses 18 and 19. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. Sinfulness is the habit of sinning. A habit is a relatively permanent pattern of behavior that allows you to navigate the world. The capacity for habitual behavior is indispensable for human life. When you're learning how to type or tie a shoe or play the piano or drive a car, it's hard work. You have to concentrate on it. After you learn, it becomes habitual. It's in your body. Good habits are enormously freeing. We accomplish good things almost on autopilot. One study from Duke University found that more than 40% of the actions of people take every day aren't decisions, but habits. Good habits free us. But when sin becomes a habit, our soul, our inner being, loses its freedom. Mr. Ortberg goes on to say, The will of man is good at making simple and even big decisions, but the will and its willpower is very bad at trying to override habits and patterns and attitudes that are deeply rooted in us. If you try to improve your soul by willpower, you will exhaust yourself and everyone around you. Thoughts and feelings are flowing through us all the time, mostly flowing in habitual patterns. But willpower alone cannot sustainably redirect those habit patterns. 
You can override a habit with willpower for a moment or two. You go to church, read the Bible, worship, sing, pray, and you feel at peace with God in those moments. And then your sin habit returns. Now listen close to his next statement. Quote, habits eat willpower for breakfast. He expands, our only hope is not for more willpower. Our only hope is for a new set of habits. Thomas Aquinas devoted over 70 pages of his writings to the cultivation of holy habits. Alcoholics Anonymous understands this principle. Their 12 steps are all about acquiring new habits, through which we have access to God's power to do what willpower can never do. Mr. Ortberg finishes with this, quote, This is what the cure of souls, our inner being, looks like for Jesus' followers. They confessed their sins to one another, prayed, studied the scriptures together. They replaced sinful habits with new habits, Jesus' habits. Boom. That's it right there. That is the answer. I'll take over from here and sum this up. The key to defeating, getting rid of a bad habit isn't by fighting it. It's by replacing it with a good habit, a godly one. Think of it like a change of clothes. Imagine changing your everyday dirty and faded clothes for some brand new clean clothes. Interesting. The word habit is derived from the French word abbe, which means clothing. It was, quote, characteristic attire of a religious order, end quote. When a young woman joined the order, she would exchange her old clothes for a new habit. And there would be new order in her way of living. When the disciples dropped their nets and joined up with Jesus, everything changed for them. In the company and presence of Jesus and with each other, there was new order. They became new individuals. Around the campfire and the circle of their fellowship, there was accountability that helped them develop brand new Jesus-led habits. And that's what God wants us to do. He wants us to find new life by offering full surrender to a new kingdom order. There are far too many Christians that are sitting all alone and locked up in the dusty prison of their old habits. And our Father, who is watching from above, is saying it's time for a change, a change of new clothes for all my children with the help of the Holy Spirit. I'll conclude with this scripture from Paul in Romans chapter 8, David's version. Dear brothers and sisters, you no longer have an obligation to do what your old nature urges you to do. But if by the power of the Holy Spirit, you put an end to the deeds of your old nature, you will live. Dear friend, thank you for listening today. I'll meet you later with the others at the campfire. Dear Holy Spirit of God, I know you're speaking to us today. We want to offer you our full surrender. With your help, we're believing for a replacement of our unwanted habits. We want to live and to act like sons and daughters of our holy and mighty Father. Remind us every day 
that we belong to His order, to His house, to His family. Let it be. Thank you for listening to another episode of In Moments Like These with David Graham. And we hope that this podcast and this episode can be another tool and resource to help you in this walk of faith. If this podcast has made a difference in your life, we would love to hear from you. Visit us online at inmomentslikethese.com. That's inmomentslikethese.com.